This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look back at the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. Steve English, David Emmett, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison on the show today. And Neil, have you actually managed to dry out after Le Mans yet? I have, Steve, and it, crazily, I'd managed to drive up by Sunday evening because anyone watching Le Mans, you know, all three races that we had, will know that, uh, you know, it was atrocious in certain stages, but Le Mans is kind of crazy and it just dries up as quickly as it kind of, the rain comes down. So, uh, yes, um, I thought I was coming back to something a bit more sunny, a bit nicer, but Barcelona is looking a bit grey and miserable today as well. So uh, I seem to have brought the weather home with me, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, Neil, I arrived into Barcelona last night. It was lovely. And then today, it's just grey, overcast. It definitely looks like there's going to be a bit of rain on the horizon. So I'll blame you for that. But uh, Adam, it was uh, a full action-packed weekend and it's already starting to kick off. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you were on the edge of your seat for the Moto E race, especially. But that and the Northern Talent Cup. I mean, it was um, after the uh, the furor of the first flag to flag we've had in four years it was um hard to contain my excitement steve and welcome back to barcelona by the way you're almost a resident i have to say you, you know you're in out of here more than you are I, I tell you what i don't want to be a resident like last year adam i was here for pretty much the whole summer and i'm much happier whenever i'm able to get back home to ireland but uh, you mentioned there about the flag to flag actually what what did you make of this race it's the first time in four years we've had one um, it was fairly bonkers, wasn't it? But, uh, you know, I'm a fan of the flag to flag. It's kind of interesting to see. I mean, how many other motorsports, especially four wheel, do we see decided in the pit lane? I mean, much to the derision of, uh, you know, fans who like racing. Um, but, you know, that kind of dynamic is something that's highly unusual. Um, you know, it's not something I think we'd like to see frequently, but it does mix things up. Um, and it's interesting to see how riders have their own little tactics and uh, strategies for swapping motorcycles and how, you know, it showed how half of the field are relatively inexperienced with that and then paid for it and on Sunday. Yeah, I thought that was probably one of the most interesting things from the weekend, just to see how everyone reacted to it. You know, it's not something that most of them were used to. And I thought it was interesting to see that, you know, some riders were able to adapt really well to it. Others couldn't adapt well. David, you've obviously had to adapt to quarantine life in Holland. How's that going on for you? Uh, Well, as soon as this is over, I'm off to get a PCR test. So maybe I'll be able to get out again after five days. But um, uh, we shall see. The thing about... um, Flag to flag race. I mean, the reason we have flag to flag race is obviously because um, the MotoGP races are on TV between two and three o'clock uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and the race format has to fit inside there. Um, and if you have rain delays or uh, restarted races, then you quickly start to overrun. Um, and yeah, I, I find them quite entertaining as well. But uh, you know, the, the the biggest reason is just to fit inside the uh, fit inside the TV slot, and it does bring out a completely different side of racing, which I think we don't see very often. Was there a case for perhaps waiting a little bit in Le Mans? I mean, I know you you could wait all day if you wanted to. Like Dave says, the TV slot is the most important thing, but. You know, to start a race in the dry and then have it rain and then go back to dry, it's, it's fairly chaotic. I know the weather was very, you know, exceptional. I doubt we'll see conditions like it again for the rest of the season. I think for me, there's no need because we were able to have the race and, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line, let's wait five minutes and see what happens? Or do you draw the line, let's wait until it rains? And then suddenly it gets very difficult to schedule things. Like I remember you 
years ago before we had the flag to flag like flag to flag has been here for the best part of 15 years and before that you know you could have a 30 minute delay waiting for a race to start or a race to restart after a red flag and you know i don't want to go back to that unless it's completely unwritable i think the flag to flag is the best solution and it's a good solution as well steve i mean we're in an age now where you know people don't need to put their fingers up in the air in the grid anymore i mean you could see there was clouds and rain coming in and people have all sorts of apps and technologies and now to know at two you know 207 we're going to get rainfall is going to drift across the area um i mean you can't make an informed decision and say right we're starting the race at 215 yeah, but weather doesn't work like that. I mean, your app says it's going to, you know, 207, there's going to be a rain thing which drifts a cloud, uh, drifts across the area. Uh, but um, it might sort of just uh, miss it and you have, you know, six drops and everyone goes, well, well, you know, why are we waiting for it? Or if it's just sort of, you know, a couple of hundred, literally a couple of hundred metres sort of further southwest, northeast, um, and you are absolutely drenched. The The, the thing about whether is it a chaotic system uh, and that makes it extremely unpredictable you can only give a, a, a like a general prediction i mean you know we've all been out there i looked on my weather app today and it said it's going to be 100 percent chance of rain but right now the sun is, uh, is shining outside my window that's just the netherlands isn't it too, too <laughs> blustery in that country but i mean you know the the, the most perilous part about it was that situation where we had just before the riders pitted where it was one lap where the track was completely doused and the, the guys were trying to get around on slick tyres in, you know, soaking wet conditions. Uh, and Joanne Mir, of course, was a victim of that. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that uh, I think um, it, in this case made it more difficult is because it was dry and then there was an absolute downpour and then all 22 tried to come in at the same time uh, not all 22 made it as you say Jean Mir didn't even make it into pit lane just uh, for you Neil obviously you were out in Le Mans what was the feeling inside the paddock about it as well because we, we heard some people criticizing the the you know the flag to flag system we've seen a lot of people just say that you know it's part of racing and it's one time in four years it's happened sometimes you just have to adapt to it at the end of the day on balance you know, it's not something that really does have that big of an impact on the series over the last few years. Um, a bit of frustration, um, to be honest. I think a little bit of, uh, yeah, people just feeling slightly fed up with the the thing. You know, four days of, of rain, Le Mans is not the most inspiring place when it's uh, grey and miserable and wet and rainy. Um, we heard some riders uh, complaining, saying that, you know, we need to push the... Uh, the, the date of the Grand Prix back um, just because the uh, the conditions are usually so bad in early May and that the tyre allocation sometimes is maybe a bit, um, yes, a bit too hard um, across all three classes. I mean, we had another crazy weekend, 117 crashes across all three Grand Prix classes. Um, and that, you kind of wonder, is that acceptable now with the kind of technology that we have? Um, so, yeah, I think there was definitely a bit of frustration Um you got the sense that people were not that enthusiastic about coming to the track on uh, on Sunday when it was uh, hammering it down. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not just been the case here for the past one or two years. Le Mans, you know, consistently has the highest numbers of crashes across any run uh, in a season. I always find it quite interesting whenever you hear people talking about changing the calendars and all this. Like, I've gone to Le Mans for the 24-hour car race and it's been freezing in the middle of June and absolutely lashing rain. Le Mans is just one of those places where no matter what time of year you go to it, you can end up with conditions like we had. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes you've just got to see, you know, is that 
where where we want to race as well. Like, you know, do you want to have a race in the south of France? Go to Paul Ricard. The weather's better down there. We'd all be happy to be down in, in, in the sunshine. But Le Mans is where we have the race and their their calendar is kind of set by what happens for the 24-hour car race. You've got the 24-hour bike race. You know, MotoGP fits in where it fits in because it also has to fit in around all the other circuits that we go to as well through the year. And, you know, every track seems to just find their natural their natural place on the calendar. Yeah, but I mean, otherwise you're going to have uh, end up with uh, trying to cram about nine races into a, a four week period in July because that's the only time that you, or that's when you think you've got the best uh, chance of a race. I mean, you know, Silverstone has been freezing in Silverstone in the morning. Even the Saxon Ring um, in the middle of July, uh, we've had mornings where the temperature hasn't got above ten degrees. Um, you just can't all cram them into the same slot. It's as simple as that. And you know, you try to spread them out uh, uh, over over the summer or or throughout the year. You know, over like a four month period. Um, but the weather is as the weather does. You you, you you cannot force it to be a particular weather unless you start racing indoors. And you know, motorcycle racing is not an indoor sport. Um, well, let's not forget also that Le Mans was, um, you know, one of the sort of the, the only wet races last year, um, and it was in a completely different time of the year. But you know, the the argument is always around Phillip Island, isn't it? Which, for sort of political reasons or uh, funding reasons, is is wedged at the end of the MotoGP season when it would be much better stealing the uh, World Superbike slot. Sorry to say, Steve. no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Definitely don't want to do that. But I'll tell you what, guys, let's uh, let's move on from the weather. Let's move on from the flag-to-flag situation. So let's just talk about what was our big moments the weekend. What was, for you, the the one thing this weekend that really stood out, Neil? This is when you immediately then say the weather and the flag-to-flag race. <laughs> yeah, the, the weather, the rain shower on Sunday morning. Um, now, my, my, my moment of the weekend, I think, had to be the... Uh the shower of the rain that arrived in the MotoGP class, the kind of chaos that it immediately caused. And in particular, um, I quite enjoyed Mark Marquez's move past Fabio Quartararo when they were going into pit lane for their bike swap um, because it was, um, as David Emmett will tell you on Twitter, completely legal and don't argue otherwise, otherwise you might incur his wrath. Um, and uh, it just, it was, it was cheeky, it was a bit sneaky, but it was mark at his kind of devilish best and uh yeah there were some aspects of his riding this weekend which were obviously still a bit ring rusty as i'm sure we'll come on to but uh, in that instance he showed that in terms of how he thinks on the bike um he still has those fighting instincts um you know that we we kind of remember from 2019 and, and before I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's illegal. I'm uh, uh, or I'm not saying it's legal. I'm saying it's not illegal. Um, you know, and if anyone can read the rule book and send me the bit where uh, the, the the where it says that he clearly contravened the rules, um, I'll be delighted. But it goes against the spirit of the rules, Dave. It's unethical. Unethical, yes, yeah. Unethical was one I particularly enjoyed. Yes, um, uh, yeah. It does. It violates the, the the spirit of the rules because we, um, uh, as we've seen in the past with uh, aerodynamics, the spirit of the rules is so important. Just uh, for me, like when Mark did that, I thought it was great because it was one of those instances where you saw again, you know, the mark of old is still there. It's just going to take a bit of time for us to see it at all times. But, you know, this was one of those moments where you saw again that Mark's just the sharpest racing brain out of everyone on the grid. And that's why he's been as successful as he is. You know, it's one thing to be fast. It's one thing to be talented. But the best riders are always the ones that can maximise everything. And Mark is always able to maximise things. I mean, the the, the thing about um, making that move there is any tenths you can gain 
you know, on the way into the pits, in the pits, which is why Mark used to jump, uh, uh, jump from bike to bike. That's all time you don't have to find out on the track. And you, you know, you'd much rather find time at sort of, you know, 70 or 80 K, uh, on the way into the pits uh, rather than at 260 K through, through a really fast corner in the wet. It's just a great way to get inside your rival's head. You know, Fabio basically was made aware at that moment. Hey, this is my race now. It didn't transpire that way. But at the moment you thought, yeah, it is Mark's race. It's Mark's world, Neil. And in conditions like that, everyone else is just kind of on the grid. But uh, Dave, what about you? What was your big moment of the weekend? I think my big moment of the grid uh, of the weekend, I mean, really, it's a related one. Um, Mark's first crash in that final corner where the bike flicked him off. You know, he really didn't have a chance. He went in. Um, uh, and the very first th- touch of the throttle, the rear camera and flicked him off. Now we saw on um, Sunday morning during warm up, uh, both Paul and Mark had uh, uh, almost exactly the same moment, but at turn three, going the other way um, in the wet, um, steering in, touched the throttle, and the the rear came round on them. Quite unusual, but I think that shows that um, Honda still have a lot of work to do, both in terms of how they throttle is very aggressive the engine is still very aggressive and they just haven't got enough weight on the rear of the bike i mean they put all the weight on the front of the bike um because that helps with braking and turning and all the rest so the uh, i think pole um uh, both pole and the tacker afterwards were complaining about the amount of pitching that the bike pitches forward uh, and there's not quite enough for weight on the rear of bi- on the bike and that was really in those moments in that moment um it really bit mark yeah, 6th, 7th and 8th for the Hondas at the flag. And obviously Mark probably would have been the lead Honda if he hadn't have had his crashes. But uh, you know, still plenty of work to be done. But Adam, what about you? What was your big moment of the weekend? Uh, I'll have to say Jack Miller. I mean, I did you know, appreciate the fact, like we said in the paddock notes on, on the Patreon show on Sunday night, the fact that Danilo Petrucci can come from last on the grid at a track where he'd won you know, the previous year and make his way all the way to 5th, which was you know, the second best finish for KTM so far in a you know, a pretty troublesome year trying to get those Michelins working. Um, but yeah, to see Jack Miller go back to back, I mean, again, uh, I, I have to say I was kind of holding my breath a little bit on the last lap uh, for him. Uh, he seemed to have the race in the bag quite early on, but, um, you know, he, in, in Hereth, it was uh, it was nervy, it was tense. This time he seemed to, to be riding a little bit on that confidence and momentum that he had foraged in spain and to see the you know he's now the first aussie back-to-back winner since casey stoner for almost 10 years so uh you know miller's making up huge grounds in the championship now up to fourth um and he's right in play and it was only two rounds ago that people were questioning whether he would be a factory ducati rider next season so it's uh what do we know firstly as observers and, and writers and journalists and um you know how fast do things change around to um to grab a cliche yeah, I thought it was really interesting that this was probably a race where it was easier to feel that pressure for Jack because Zarko was pulling in a second a lap, second and a half a lap at different times, and Jack just rides to his pit board. I thought it was really impressive stuff from him. Not just riding to his pit board, but uh, was also riding to where he could see in the track. He said that the layout of Le Mans helped him in some respects because you obviously have a series of corners which kind of come back on themselves. So like the the final double right, for example, at uh, Recordamon, he was saying whenever he was coming out of the final turn, he could look to his right and see exactly where Zarko was. And he was just able to manage the gap visually as well as by his pit board. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty mature display, you would say, for Miller. Um, and, uh, you know, to win despite a double long lap penalty. Um, yeah, some going. 
yeah, I thought you said it really well there, Neil. Really mature stuff and just a good, confident, inspired ride from him. And for me, it, it's actually quite a contrast to my moment of the weekend because my moment of the weekend was Alex Rins crashing out of this race. You know, like we've talked about it in different times on the podcast in the past about some of Rins's crashes. And again, this is another crash that is understandable in isolation. But racing doesn't happen in isolation. And it's another crash for Rins. It's three crashes in a row. It's three times he's crashed out of you know, being in, in a podium battle. And if he stays on the bike, you know, he's not 60 points off the championship lead. He's somewhere, you know, 10 points off the lead, 15 points off the lead. He's in the title fight. But instead, we have another weekend where you have to ask questions about Rins. It's four crashes because he managed to crash twice. I mean, the second one was more understandable because he um, he crashed so soon after coming uh, after coming out of the pits. I mean, basically uh, on his outlap, and then he rode back in and he jumped back on the second bike. And the second bike had wets on, but it still had a very dry setup. So uh, you know, springs are all too soft. The the, the, the damping is too harsh, um, uh, and it's much more difficult to actually control. So you know, it's inevitable that he's going to crash. But yeah, you really do have to ask questions. There's no doubt about the the. The, the boy's talent he is really really fast and is capable clearly capable of winning races uh, finishing on the podium um but he he's it's his judgment which i think is uh, a question it's another season as well where he's just throwing away too many points and doesn't seem to be too affected by it at least when he's talking to the media i mean now he's like 12th in the championship he's only got 23 points which is three more than you know an a bestanini who's like a rookie in in the, in the championship i mean if i was part of the select management committee that suzuki have now i would be kind of asking questions saying alex what is going on i mean last year you had a shoulder injury and that was a mitigating factor towards you know his his early season form but um, it's not really good enough. His shoulder injury also, I think, um, uh, perhaps prevented him from crashing because it meant it took. He was taking fewer risks in the early part of the season. Now that he's better, he's right on it again. And, you know, and his excuse was, "Yeah, well, maybe now I'm making up for the crashes I didn't have over the last two seasons," which is um, uh, not what you expect to hear from a MotoGP racer. He's just, you know, thrown away a very good chance at a very good result because he was really quick. Yeah, and that speed, like you said, David, never really in doubt for him. And unfortunately, the instants just keep kind of clocking up. That's where the next few rounds really going to be important for him and for Suzuki as well, because obviously this was a race where we also saw Juan Mir crash out. So it's been a, a tough start to his title defense, tough times for Suzuki. And when we come back after the break, we're going to break down the French Grand Prix into some detail. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to kick off just initially talking about Yamaha guys because I thought it was one of the most interesting things from this weekend I thought you know in the wet conditions in the dry conditions the Yamaha looked really strong but uh, you know Neil if you look at it in those mixed conditions you know Maverick Vinales the struggles again that we saw from him unfortunately it's a continuation of what we've seen over the last few rounds and it's in stark contrast to his teammate yeah exactly Steve um, I thought it was 
an interesting part of the the race as well, in particular uh, Fabio Quartararo, because um, you know we saw on I think Friday morning when we had wet conditions, you know Fabio was like three seconds off the pace in the rain. He just did not look happy at all. Um, I thought having a flag to flag situation in the race would um, would really disrupt him because him and Maverick both had really strong dry pace and maybe pace good enough for for victory or, or maybe you know a, a one two you would say um, but when the win, rain arrived um, I thought Fabio was brave um, he was um, he was very composed he had the moment with Marquez in the pit lane like we mentioned just before didn't let that upset him um, and uh, you know, considering his wet previous wet weather performance in MotoGP was uh, a pretty disappointing. I think it was ninth place last year. Um, I thought Fabio did exactly what he had to do in the race. Um, okay, he had no answer for Miller or Zarco, um, but for a guy that has limited wet weather experience on a MotoGP machine, and for a guy that uh, had his arm operated open, um, what ten days before. Um, I thought uh, I thought this was a ride of real maturity, real class, um, and just showed like how big a jump he's made in such a short space of time, which is always the sign of um, serious talent. Um, so yeah, I thought Fabio scored absolutely top marks for his, uh, his home Grand Prix, um, and you know you just have to contrast um, his ride with uh, the fortunes of, of Vinales and with Rossi. We mentioned Vinales. Rossi also had pretty decent pace um, in the dry. And, and Franco Morbidelli as well. I mean, those guys were nowhere. So, um, yeah, I think um, contrasting fortunes within Yamaha, but you have to take your hat off to Fabio and say that this was a, a really strong home Grand Prix for him. I do agree. You know, I think, you know, recovering after arm pump, especially, uh, that was a big thing for Quattararo's confidence. But I do maybe disagree with you in, the, in terms of him being composed. I mean, uh, going through the pit lane and riding into your teammates' pit box is uh, perhaps not a sign of a man who's, uh, you know, the most calm under pressure. <laughs> but, that's uh, a fair point yeah. that's a fair but then point, you know yeah. it also it also leads to a subject which maybe we can touch on which is the penalties um you know i'm sure you know maybe it's an exaggeration but somebody in the fim race direction was probably rubbing their hands you know when when the rain came down and you know riders were changing because you know they they knew that you know we would have to move on but from the usual chaos of the track limits uh warnings um oh by the way it was actually nice to have a relatively tranquil weekend when it comes to motor three slow riding penalties and not having 15 riders all being uh moved around the grid uh, after a q2 and, and well friday and saturday but yeah it was um you know there was a lot going on wasn't there i mean it was hard to kind of fathom uh, you know, who was doing long lap penalties where and who would perhaps be sanctioned after the race. Uh, it was was chaotic. Uh, what was, well, I mean, what was interesting was the fact that um, Jack Miller's two long lap penalties, he did that in uh, even faster than Fabio Quartararo did one long lap penalty, which is really impressive. Um, uh, he lost 3.4 seconds to do two long lap penalties and Fabio lost uh, 3.6 doing just the one. I think Fabio's penalty, I mean, Fabio's penalty is just black and white. It's written in the rules. You have to come into the right uh, into the right slot to change uh, change bikes. This was obviously introduced um, after Mark Marquez, um, well, to stop Mark Marquez doing his bunny hops because um, he was getting in and out so fast that it was uh, uh, it, it became extremely difficult um, it, or difficult and quite dangerous. Um, and also, we know also know that Fabio Quattararo and Maverick Vinales have swapped uh, garage sites this 
uh, this year. I think they're on they're on a different side of the garage. So I wonder if that all, was also playing uh, uh, playing into it. I mean, Quattraro himself said, I think something about he almost went into an um, uh, Bastianini slot. So. Um, I thought it was interesting what uh, Joanne Mir said after the race. He obviously had a chance to to watch after crashing out just before the pit swap, and he was watching, you know, what was going on after that. And he said, you know, the secret was to just try and risk a lot in the very start of the wet laps because essentially that determines where you'll finish more or less, give or take a few positions. I mean, he said, you know, Fabio did it just right because he hung in there with Marquez or tried to hang in there for a couple of laps and that just basically pulled them away from the field. They already had a decent advantage before they came in but um, that was also down to Fabio being there in the dry. Maverick Vinales made a mistake before he came into the pit lane um, and you know considering Yamaha's previous records or you know previous performances in iffy conditions um, I thought you know that, that, that took uh, quite a lot of bravery quite a lot of skill to even get himself into the position where he was not that far behind Mark when um, you know Mark crashed out so yeah you know kudos to Fabio um, and uh, you know there was a, a real doubt and a cloud hanging over him after the Spanish Grand Prix thinking you know that's going to affect him in such a you know he's so emotional and so down after that race even a few days afterwards I think he was still reading um, and you know he's, he's picked himself up pretty well and um, looking strong yeah, just two things. I mean, uh, Mia, I mean, he gets the award for stating the bloody obvious, really. I mean, you need to qualify, get further forward, not just for rain conditions, but we, we've said before that's been a weakness of his, um, you know, and it's been borne out in the results and, and the work he's having to do, you know, through 25, 27 laps on a Sunday. And just touching on the Yamahas now, what you mentioned about, um, you know, uh, the, the contrasting fortunes of the riders, Morbidelli, it was, it was, that was a bizarre incident, wasn't it? I mean, you couldn't see quite so well from the, the TV footage in Pitt lane but um i mean the fact that his knee just folded uh, i'd heard about it but i you know having seen the footage i was trying to understand how he could really wreck his knee from really just taking a step off the bike and you could see how obviously painful and, and weak it was when he went into the gravel and just couldn't keep the yamaha the m1 upright um i do wonder how that will affect him going to his home grand prix yeah, I mean, it's, it, he seems to be fine as long as um, as long as he's just on the bike. It, it sounds a lot like the injury which um, Bradley Smith had, where he wrecked his cruciate leg uh, ligament. Um, this happened in a training accident at the at the ranch, apparently. Um, and so, yeah, it. I mean, it was odd seeing him, you know, just jump off his bike and then just completely buckle. And it was clear that the crash in the uh, in the in the gravel was down to the fact that he couldn't keep himself upright with his uh, with his leg. But to go back to the point that Neil was making about um, uh, you know being quick in those early races, how much of a difference of it uh, it makes? Maverick Vinales, you know, from uh, you know lap two, I think uh, Jack Miller just got past um, Maverick Vinales on lap two or lap three, and on lap four when it started to rain, Vinales lost five seconds. Um, it makes. I mean, I spent all of yesterday playing with spreadsheets uh, just to see where people made the uh, loving made the- your quarantine life, Dave. <laughs> Tell us something that's new. Dave. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know. I know how to have fun. Um, but I mean, it was it was genuine. It is it is fascinating seeing exactly where people make uh, make up. I mean, as soon as you see Vinales lose, you know, five uh, five point um, five point one eight five seconds to Mark Marcus. Um, you know, three and a half seconds to to, to to Jack Miller just in a single lap. 
that's a big, big difference. And he and he just you know drops like a stone. Um, and it it that's really where where the race was decided. Marquez was so fast. Um, Alex Rins was so fast. They couldn't stay on. Um, they were. They actually ended up falling off. Um, but the difference between Joan Zarco, the people who ended up on the podium, you know, Joan Zarco was also much much slower through uh, th- through that section. You know, he was what was he uh, by lap four? He was like eight seconds behind, but he lost another six seconds in the next uh, in the next two laps. So uh, in the in the bike swaps, um, he, he lost another six seconds in the first two laps out of the uh, out of the pit because um, he had the medium rear and the medium rear takes a little bit of time to come in. And what you hope is that you gain enough speed in the last laps when the track starts to dry out. But that didn't happen. You know, Miller managed it. Miller pushed really hard in those early laps and got a a big lap, a big lead very, very quickly with Quattararo. But Quattararo ended up running out of um, a, a front tyre um, because the soft couldn't hold it. And, you know, w- once Miller was past Quattararo, he also dropped in very quickly. But that was where Jack Miller actually won the race. He won the race in those in in the space of maybe five, six, seven laps where he was just pushing so hard that the, the others just couldn't keep up with him. And he made a lot of difference. And that's one of the things which makes uh, a flag-to-flag race so interesting is the fact that they um, there's lots of parallel races going on depending on people's strategies. So someone will be quite fast at one point and then try to catch up later on. And, you know, if people start going in, if it really dries out, people have to go back in for a, for a bike uh, for, for slick and they have to make the calculation when's it going to be worth doing that yeah because i thought one of the most interesting things that we saw was that adaptability from certain riders you know this was another time where we saw as always jack's very good in those changeable conditions you got to react to what's happening underneath you maverick wasn't maverick's fantastic when the conditions are constant but struggling in that transitional period i thought it was really interesting that we saw lots of riders try different things with their tires some guys went with a soft rear others thought it's going to dry out quickly let's use a harder rear tire and i thought it was interesting to see how you know that was managed as well but i'm always quite interested as well david like in terms of making the decision for which tires to use on on the on the bike in the pits who does that typically come down to is that pre-decided or is it just on the team to react at any given moment it's it's usually pre-decided um and it's talked about between the the, the team and the rider um so for example fabio quasararo i mean like in the end it turned out that the soft front was too soft and it was the wrong choice but they didn't have any experience with the medium front they hadn't they hadn't tried the medium uh, wet front all weekend so uh, they had no idea what the what the bike would be like so they they went with what they knew and i think that was for a, a lot of riders that was what what they did jack miller went with um uh, jack miller all the ducatis had tried both uh, uh, both tires you know the, the both the medium and the softs and um, made the best out of that but um yeah it it, it was about experience understanding what knowing what you've got uh, and then just trying to make the uh, trying to find a way to make the best of it. And I thought one of the riders that did that really well, Neil, was Paco Bagnaya as well. You know, comes away with another top five finish. He's only a point off the championship lead. If we had had another lap, he probably would have been on the podium. You know, this was another example where, you know, we you talked about the contrast between the Yamahas. This was another example where we saw Ducati's got two very strong riders right now, good confident riders as well. 
It does, yeah. And I think in every podcast this season in which we've spoken about Peko, we've talked about his massive improvement in basically cold slash wet conditions. And this was further proof of that, um, that he is able to uh, basically get his tyres up to temperature uh, quite quickly. Um, not as quick as his rivals in this instance, um, but still showed real um, r- real composure to, to ride well. I mean, he had an awful start. He, he qualified poorly, Peko, down his 16th. Um, and, you know, he just hasn't really been able to get off the line as well um, as um, some of his other Ducati stablemates this year. Um, I think he was down in 19th um, at the end of lap two. Uh, was 19th basically in lap, uh, in lap three as well. Um, but, um, yeah, as you said, um, managed to, to come through the field um, very quickly and make uh, rapid progress. Um, lots of overtakings. And, uh, yeah, fourth place was uh, an impressive result to pull out of the hat whenever he was uh, on course to have a bit of a disaster. Yeah, I mean, after the by the end of the fourth, uh, the, the fourth lap, he was already 10 seconds behind and he lost another 15 seconds in the next four laps. So it was just, uh, you, you know, that was where Banyaya really lost it. But he was much, much quicker um, uh, looking towards the uh, looking towards the end of it. It was Jean Zarco and Pekka Banyaya who were the fastest in the um, in that second half of a, of a race. And it was it, the, the, the last third of the race, last nine laps. Um, Pekka Banyaya was, uh, well, seconded a bit quicker than Zarco, uh, and he was 10 seconds faster than, um, the, the, than Jack Miller. He was 20 seconds faster than Fabio Quattararo. So, you know, Banyaya was incredibly quick at the end of the race, but he'd lost too much in the, in, in the first part. And of course, another guy that had the double long lap penalty, just like Jack, because he exceeded uh, he exceeded the uh, the speed limit in pit lane. So you know, add that in, and it, you know, Peko comes away with fourth place, and it's a really impressive fourth place, all things considered. Yeah, especially considering in the preview show, we were asking questions of the relatively inexperienced riders in MotoGP and whether they can handle the rainy conditions. So Peko kind of graduated with uh, with honors in that one. It just uh, Neil, you mentioned there about the double long lap penalty for both Ducati riders. How does it work for teams to set that pit lane speed limiter as well? Because it's strange whenever it's two teammates that have that issue. So clearly, it was something that uh, was happening with Ducati that didn't happen with anyone else. I mean, it was quite strange in that um, you know the pit lane speed limit is sixty kilometers per hour, um, and Peko told us after the race that their pit lane speed speedometer, uh, or sorry. Pit lane speed limiter is uh, set at seventy kilometers per hour, um, which I don't know, Dave, whether you. Uh... That, I, uh, people can't see the face that I'm making, but it's not a good one because uh, the pit lane limit, the the, the the limiter has always been at sixty kilometers. It's been sixty kilometers forever. If Ducati at this point in time have their pit lane limiter set at seventy kilometers an hour, they would have to be completely insane. I mean, it looked to me that they just he just. Um, activated it too late. They came in. He, he was. They were well past. I mean, certainly Miller just didn't break early enough, and perhaps that's a a function of the the the, the difficult um, entry into pit lane there. Um, but yeah, it, it looked like they they just forgot. They you know it was just rider error, not uh, not uh, starting at the, at the right time. Yeah, I might just uh, I got Peko's comments from Sunday in front of me, and he actually said I activated it. But when you do that, you have seventy kilometers per hour so basically he was saying he was going too fast when he activated it so so yeah by that i think uh, i think i think you're right he said i had to stop more the bike when i activated it so um yes so i, I think we could say rider error on his part as well as jack's but then he was penalized for going only three kilometers an hour over the limit 
I mean, to having to do a long lap and potentially lose a race or a podium for for that kind of margin is just uh, beggar's belief. Talk talk to Guy Martin about a TT with only you know a couple of tenths of a mile an hour above it. I'd yeah. Plus, I mean, the the, the previous penalty for that was uh, a ride through penalty in pit lane. You know, so I think yes, long lap penalty is quite harsh, but I think it's it's more in proportion with the the kind of the level of the crime that it used to be. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things for me that was quite interesting this weekend because whether it was Fabio's penalty, whether it was the pit lane speed limits, whether it's exceeding track limits. You know, I think the long lap penalty is very good because it doesn't cost you everything. You know, you take a, a ride through penalty, your race is done. Even in the wet conditions like this, you lose too much time. Whereas I think this penalty is quite proportional for your tran- for your transgression. And I think, you know, this was another example where we saw that this weekend, that this is a good improvement that uh, MotoGP has been able to move to try and, you know, make it where the penalty actually befits the crime, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the the reason for the pit lane uh, speed limit is quite simple. It's simply safety because, you know, we've seen people die in pit lane in the past and we don't want that to happen again. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, a, a double long lap pen- penalty um, in normal conditions would cost you sort of between two and four, uh, two, four, five, six seconds maybe, um, which is in a dry race is a really, really harsh penalty to have. Uh, without it making making things impossible, but um, in the wet, of course, things are completely different because you, there's ways of making up time elsewhere. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, these are all these the penalties that were issued were black and white. I mean, it says very clearly in the rule book about stopping uh, where you have to stop your bike and to, to swap your bike. It says very clearly in the um, uh, in the rule book about where you um about the speed limit in pit lane um and it doesn't say very clearly at all anything about what happens when you uh, go across the white line uh, on the way into pit entry otherwise apart from it being counted uh, as one of your uh, uh, track exceeding track limits um, allowance yeah well even then like once you come into pit lane you've come into pit lane as well so it's one of those strange ones that is a very gray area it'd be interesting to see whether or not that gets clarified going forward but i want to get all of your thoughts on the quattro penalty as well because i found it really interesting that there was so many people saying oh he's penalized himself though you know he's made this mistake and he's had to run around vinales's bike to get to it i found it really interesting that people can't people didn't seem to want to separate that he could easily have blocked vinales from making his pit entry if Vinales was behind them so you know while Pateraro did penalize himself he warranted a penalty as well Dave you were saying it was black and white there but I thought this was just a clear case of you know if he goes to any other pit box people don't think oh he shouldn't be given a penalty for this if he goes to the Suzuki pit box before it you know it's a clear penalty for everyone I found it interesting to see people's reaction just because it was his teammate also, it's a little bit of a fuss about nothing, isn't it? I mean, if he's if he's run into the pit box, disappeared off somewhere and suddenly emerged and, you know, has some secret kind of advantage that he's gained, fair enough. But he's very obviously run three meters to his other bike, jumped on it. You know, like you say, he penalized himself. I, 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 you know, and he he hasn't ridden the wrong way down the pit lane, which you would understand being a sanctionable offense. So it was um, it was uh, a little puzzling, I think excessive yeah I, mean, I it's black and white that's what it says it's there to stop people from it's it's there to make the whole uh, procedure 
uh, safer. So everyone knows where the bike is at all times or where the bike's supposed to be um, uh, to make it more predictable with, like I say, 22 riders all coming in at the same time was incredibly hectic. And we saw a number of really close moments. We saw uh, Rossi almost hit uh, Binder. Um, uh, there was a couple of other moments as well, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was just, it was so chaotic that it becomes very, very close. And so you have to have these rules just to make it, make it just a little bit more structured. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, by, by making that mistake, clearly, uh, Quattararo penalized himself, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, like, how would we feel if Mark Marquez had parked in front, uh, parked in Quattararo's, um, uh, uh, pit box? Would we, uh, would we feel exactly the same as Quattararo parking in, uh, uh, in Vinales' uh, pit box? It's, it, you know, it's, um, the rules are the rules. I mean, and it's it, it it's very clear. It's very simple. You can't make that mistake. And really, it's a it, it's a rider. A rider should not be making those mistakes. And I don't think it's going to make a mis- a mistake I'll make again. But again, I don't think it had any real uh, influence on the outcome. It's quite interesting as well that you know this is the kind of thing that you see when riders change teams in the winter and they'll go with their first exit. They'll come back to their old team. You know, this was also, you know, the first time Fabio's had to do a flag to flag, the first time he's had that mid-race panic and, you know, he saw blue and he said, oh, that must be my pit box. And he just went to the wrong one. I think penalties fair cop on it. I think the long lap penalty as well, you know, it doesn't cost a wild amount of time. It clearly shows you've made a mistake. You get penalized, didn't make an impact on the race. So, you know, I thought it was, it was a good penalty. Yeah, I think also the lack of experience in in a flag to flag race is a really good point because we saw a lot of that. You know, Miguel Oliveira, his first flag to flag race, he crashes. Uh, Juan Mir, his first flag to flag race, he crashes. A lot of people, uh, uh, I think the rookies struggled and the people who did well are the people with experience. And I think it's always interesting, David, then as well, that obviously it leads to an awful lot of other elements in a race as well and and the inexperience for riders was something that we saw come to the fore with quite a few of our title contenders as well we're obviously five races into the MotoGP season Adam but uh, this was a race where you know quite a few of the title contenders maybe showed a little bit of their inexperience a little bit of naivety as well yeah and following on a little bit from Dave's point about the flag to flag I mean Juan Mir his his debrief of the media afterwards was was quite revealing I mean you know, he even confessed to having, yeah, starting to run back to the pit lane at one point, like he could grab his second bike and re-enter the race uh, until it kind of dawned on him that he was actually out. Um, and he, he talked about, you know, the championship in a whole. And this is one of the kind of attributes that we've praised in the past compared to Alex Rins that, you know, Mia tends to look at the bigger picture, which is still impressive considering his, his lack of experience, you know, compared to other races in the class and also his age. Um, you know, he, he reflected on Lamont afterwards and said, well, you know, it's a zero points. Um, and, you know, most riders have that during a season, don't they? But, you know, looking at Mia's championship, I was thinking it's been a pretty slow start, one podium finish in five races. But then I sort of had a look again at his his 2020 you know championship year and he only posted one podium finish in the, the first five events of last year so it's not a it's not a lost cause by any means even if he is kind of stuck in that 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 pit that kind of group outside of the the main runners at the moment in sixth position i mean mia really turned it around in the middle of last season i think he got something like six podiums from seven races and that's where he forged you know his championship but, um, you know, he was, uh, 
kind of relaxed, didn't seem too concerned. Um, and I, I think, you know, he's someone that's going to need to really turn it up uh, in Mugello and Catalonia to, to get back in the fight. I think, you know, we talk about momentum, we talk about confidence, we talk about form, and somebody like Jack Miller, um, you know, is an, a shining example of, of the turnaround, and Amir's in need of a turnaround. Yeah, but he's still only 31 points down, you know? I mean, 31, pounds, uh, 31 points with, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 races left in the championship because we still don't know how many they're going to be. Uh, but there are still a lot of races. Um, we know the Suzuki's are strong at Mugello. We, we we saw how strong the Suzuki's were last year at Barcelona. Uh, we now saw how strong the Suzuki's are at Assen. Yeah, Saxon, maybe it should be good at Saxon Ring too. So, yeah, I mean, there is plenty of time to turn this ship around. I just thought it was quite um, puzzling when you looked at Mir's crash on Sunday. Um, I think it was at turn 12 um, and um, he fell off, obviously, and then he, he basically was like running away in the gravel. And that just struck me as slightly strange. He said that the bike was obviously damaged and, um, you know, he, he kind of accepted that it was gone. But you think you're about to go into pit lane. Pit lane is literally just up the road you know we saw Fra we saw franco mobadelli um i think he was when he crashed on the first lap he was down in the gravel in agony holding his knee um and then he saw the rain coming and he was like you know what i better get back because i can change my bike and maybe there's a chance of scoring some points and i thought it was quite puzzling like why didn't Mayer make some kind of effort to, to pick his bike up and to pull back to the pit lane because it was close and he would have had the chance to change his bikes if he managed to get his bike running so um yeah, slightly puzzling um, from Mir. But, you know, I think when you speak to, to people from Suzuki, certainly from Mir's team, I, I bumped into his Gucci Frankie Carcetti on uh, Saturday when I was walking out of the paddock. And um, he was just telling me that, uh, you know, Le Mans is just, it's, it's, a, it's a tough run for them. And I think there was enough in the weekend as a whole to suggest that, you know, Mir has made some decent steps in wet weather riding. I think there was a few sessions where he was actually quite fast in the rim. We didn't really see that last year. Um, and, you know, generally he, he was quite pleased with his pace in the dry. I mean, like look at the, the first laps of the race in the dry. I mean, Rins had, I think, probably the most impressive couple of laps of anyone in the dry. And, you know, Mir wasn't that far behind him. And that was from another really lousy qualifying performance. So, um, yes, Adam, I hold your your reservations and think like, you know, it's it's not a good thing for the championship. But I think if you look at the whole weekend, there are certainly some things to say that, you know, Mir has definitely come on from last year in his riding. Yeah, and not picking your bike up is exactly the kind of mistake you would expect from a rookie in his first, or well, a rookie from a rider who hasn't done a, 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 a lot of flag-to-flag uh, -flag races. You know, it's, it's just having the principle. Because you crash, you panic, you, you do something, and what you don't necessarily do the right thing. Uh, it's just, you know, training your minds to think, okay, you know, this might be a flag-to-flag -flag race. Because at that point, it wasn't a flag-to-flag -flag race. Um, uh, uh, pick the bike up, try to get back to the pits and see what happens, so, uh, take it from there. So... Yeah, that, that one I, I, I'm sort of. I think you can put down to inexperience. Just when you look at the championship as a whole right now, as well. Obviously, you know, you look at Johan Zarco up there, third in the championship. He's had three podiums through the course this year. Really solid starts here. He's only twelve points off the top. It is one of those seasons where you could easily have it where riders are peaking and troughing through the course of the year ad well you've just stole my winner of the weekend actually steve and with your point there and joe and sarko um you know i think uh having been seen as 
you know, one of the, the kings of Qatar uh, in terms of using the Ducati's, uh, you know, main advantages and characteristics at La Salle, um, you know, that was a, a big fire back into contention. Uh, for 2021 um, a good result is home Grand Prix a place where he's buckled in the past of uh, you know having the large microscope of and pressure of the Le Mans crowd uh, which was missing again sadly uh, for the second year in a row uh, but Nizako I think you know is showing a little bit the maturity and experience you know in contrast to certainly his younger countrymen and, and some of the other riders in the field so for me he was one of the the, the winners from the Grand Prix am I allowed a second one well, you can you, you you can now, right? Because we've jumped into we've jumped into winners and losers, and I kind of pushed you into it clearly there. So we can we can move straight into winners and losers now, right? Who's your actual winner for this weekend, Dad? No, uh, like I said earlier, Danilo Petrucci for me. Um, because why? Uh, of course, it was you know conditions that we know he's very good in. Um, he again pointed to the fact that his weight is uh, a mitigating factor in the setup of the RC16. Um, as we pointed out before, him and Paul are the main riders on the grid getting used to new bikes aside from the rookies. Um, and for Petrucci, he's still trying to get his head around the weight distribution and the braking. Um, and the braking is one of the, the main attributes for the KTM. Um, so you know just to get those points get that finish be the first KTM past the checkered flag was a big thing for him uh, I you know KTM go to Mugello well the whole field goes to Mugello next but that's a tricky track for, for the Austrians so I don't know how uh, you know Petrucci is going to handle that circuit where he's won in the past and uh, you know another, another good place for him but um, you know another reason why I think he was a winner um, purely because in Moto2, we've seen the Red Bull KTM AO riders, Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez again, uh, largely dominate in terms of pace and authority going one, two and talk of, you know, those two riders already bumping into tech three for 2022 is not beyond the realms of possibility. So I think uh, Petrucci, as well as Ikaluka Ono, who bagged a top 10 finish in ninth, um, you know, stated their cases. Uh, they really uh, produced at Tech 3's home race um, some results that were needed. So what, that's five racers that you've picked for your, for your winner, Adam. <laughs> I think that's a new record. <laughs> five? No, come on now. Well, well it, was, it was Petrucci, Zarco, Io boys. Well, I'm not saying the that. Corona, the Corona. The Io, the Io boys <laughs> are the... Uh, Hervey. The <laughs> race direction because they didn't have to do any long lap penalties for exceeding track limits. Adam, I think that this was just a weekend of winners, really. Listen, if you're going to wreck the flow of the podcast, I'm, you know, if you're going to open the door, I'm going through. Hey, hey, it, it, was, it was your cutaway like a chainsaw that took us to winners and losers, but it did buy us some time to have a little chat about KTM as well. Because, you know, Neil, if you look back to the first few podcasts of the year, we talked a lot about Brad Binder doing a really good job. You know, the last couple of rounds have been a real struggle for him. Miguel Oliveira's had a really tough start to the season. I just want to ask you, you know, obviously KTM lost Paul for this season whenever he went to Honda. How big of an impact does not having someone with his experience have on a manufacturer like KTM, I think it's uh, it's it's a big it's a big impact, Steve, because uh, you know Paul did show last year that he was pretty much adept at being fast in, in pretty much any condition. Um, you know, Brad Binder, I think, has had a really good season. That was probably the the toughest year or the toughest run that he's had this season so far. Um, you know, he had the potential maybe to be fighting for the podium in a race, but he crashed obviously early early doors. Um, but all weekend he was just saying that he 
isn't really so strong in, in, in wet conditions or in, in kind of iffy conditions. That's somewhere that he's never really been that comfortable with. Um, so, uh, yeah, and we know that Paul, obviously, is a, a great rider. He was in the, on the podium at uh, Le Mans last year with KTM. So, yeah, I think that's a big impact. I think Miguel Oliveira, you know, is probably going through his most difficult moment as a, as a MotoGP rider. Um, you know, the results just won't come. Had a crash out of, uh, you know, a decent position in, uh, in Le Mans. But, um, you know, Oliveira has so far just scored nine points, you know, at the start of the season was talking about fighting for the championship. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough spell for the Portuguese rider. So, um, yeah, but I wouldn't, I, I, you know, I think, um, you know, if, if things are kind of, if we had a fully dry weekend, I don't think we would be talking about KTM in such a, in such a way. Oliveira was really, really fast when he crashed that. He was one of the fastest. Uh, I think there was a couple of laps where he was the fastest rider on the grid. So, um, uh, promising, but, you know, it got caught out by the circumstances. Again, I would put that down to experience, but um, uh, he was fast. Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner from the weekend? Um, well, uh, if Adam doesn't mind, um, I would like to steal maybe one of his winners. Um, well, you got if, half the grid to steal from Still as well, so exactly. don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. So, Spread the um, love. I'm going Spread to, it. <laughs> I'm going to say Raul Fernandez is my big uh, winner um, because he made history on Sunday um, by becoming the first rider in Model 2 history to win two of his first five races. No one's ever done that before. Uh, he's now within one point of the championship lead. Um, and... Uh, showed just once again that he was fast he was fast in all conditions as well he was fast in the really set pole position in uh, kind of wet wet conditions on Saturday afternoon um, I think that was his first or this weekend was the first time for him riding a Moto2 machine in the wet um, it's, it's seriously impressive you, you look at uh, what Alessio Spargaro said on Thursday he was asked about Pedro Acosta and he said look Acosta's doing amazing things but the man that I'm being seriously impressed with in the lower classes is Raul Fernandez last year Acosta was already riding Moto3 bikes so you know this year it isn't such a big transition Fernandez has had to make quite a big transition um, and he's just looking super super confident um, and unflappable, really. Um, you know, Remy Gardner, I think, maybe had pace similar to him. And once Gardner got into second place, it looked as though he might be able to, to chase him down. Gardner said he ran out of tires, but I think Fernandez held his head and just didn't make any mistakes. Everyone was making mistakes at the start of that Moto2 race. Um, and Gardner just played it, sorry, Fernandez just played it totally cool. Um, and I like the answer he gave after the race. He was asked whether he's going to MotoGP next year. And he said, oh, you know, I'm not bothered. I'd like to stay in Moto2 for a, another season in 2022. Um, it's up to KTM. You know, KTM basically have my future in their hands if they want me to go to MotoGP. Fair enough, but I'm perfectly happy to stay with Aki for another year. So, um, yeah, I think just for everything that he did in the weekend, you have to say Ralph Fernandez is, uh, yeah, another superstar in waiting. What about you, Dave? Um, well, I'm hoping that you'll choose Jack Miller because Jack Miller definitely deserves it for a fantastic ride. Um, but I'm going to go with Fabio Quartararo because he comes away leading the championship. Not just that, as Neil was saying earlier, he was really, really fast in sketchy conditions. He was much faster than any of the other uh, Yamahas. Uh, the Yamahas said, you know, if it's dry uh, uh, and it's sort of half and half, or if if there's a, if there's damp patches on the wet and we're riding slicks, I'm fine. We're fast. Um, but if we have to ride with wet tires, we're nowhere. Um, Fabio Quartararo was very, very not nowhere, uh, you know, finishing on the podium, really strong weekend, really strong race and uh, a really strong comeback. So, you know, he puts himself straight back into title contention uh, and leads the championship. Yeah, I'm not going to pick Jack, Dave, just because you want me to pick Jack. <laughs> 
I'm going to pick Ducati though, just so that I'm still able to talk about Jack. Uh, I thought uh, for me, Ducati was the big winner because they've got, well, you could look at it as three real top class riders right now, whether you're looking at Jack, Paco Bagnaia, Zarco, all of them firing on all cylinders right now. For me, what's really interesting is if you look back at when we spoke to Jack and Paco pre-season on one of our season preview shows, you know, both of them seem to really take a good attitude coming into the season. And it would have been easy for both of them to kind of lose sight of that at different times during the course of the season so far. I think especially for Jack after Portimao, you know, a silly crash in Portimao, it would have been easy for him to suddenly get himself dug into a hole. But instead, he's come out swinging from that. He's had two great race wins. And it's not even about winning the races. It's just how he's managed to control those races that impressed me. How Paco's managed to control his consistency has really impressed me. You know, it was another race where he could have finished on the podium this week. I thought it was another race where he got faster and faster as the race wore on. As he got a little bit more experience in the conditions, he was the man on the move. So for me, you know, this was a weekend where Ducati really they can look at it and say, you know what, we're ticking all the boxes right now and that can only be a good thing before you go to Mugello. But uh, it is always a case of where we have winners, we also have losers. And I'm afraid to go to Adam in case he also names half the grid. So we'll start off with Neil on who was your big loser from this weekend's race, Neil? <laughs> I have to go with um, with Mark Marquez um, just because um, that might be a bit harsh um, considering he was leading in only his, uh, his third weekend back. Um, after such a lengthy layoff um, but I think Mark saw that as a, a massive massive missed opportunity um, had you know not just one crash uh, but two um, and I think the first crash did show just a little bit that he hasn't been in that kind of situation for so long I mean it's been a, an age since he was uh, last leading a MotoGP race um, and he said afterwards that looking at the times that everyone was doing he said the race was there basically for the taking. You know, if he had just shown a little bit more caution, um, considering his crash and morning warm-up, yes, if he had one, he would have had 43 points to his name, I think six less than Joanne Mir. So you would maybe be talking about him in the uh, in terms of the championship. Um, and, you know, don't let him fool you. He's saying all this stuff like, I'm not thinking about the championship at all. It's all about getting back my feeling. But I think Mark has absolutely got his eyes on the championship. He was talking about... <clears throat> the Finnish Grand Prix being cancelled and having a double header in, in Austria, saying like that's perfect because it gives me um, five extra weeks to recover for that round of the season. Um, so you know he's looking at the second half of the year as when he'll be fully recovered and yeah, to have been as close as as he could have been had he won the race, um, I think would have been you know quite ominous for the rest of the field. But as it is, it showed that he's still physically and in terms of racecraft a little bit off the pace. What about you, Dave? Uh, I'm going to follow on from uh, from Neil and say Honda. My, I think my big big loser this weekend was Honda because um, the bike showed that it still has this problem, this uh, uh, problem with rear grip um, that is causing them severe problems. Even though you know both Taka and uh, and Alex Marcus had had pretty good races. They still, there is still this issue, and the fact that the that they are losing the rear uncontrollably because the, the way that they lost it, there was absolutely no way that they were that um, Mark and Paul, for example, were ever going to be able to save that. Um, shows that there there's a real problem with weight balance in the bike, um, and that's something they're going to need to fix to make the bike a little bit easier to ride. 
especially for Mark, if Mark is going to have a chance of actually being in the championship, then he needs a better bike, and the bike isn't good enough at the moment for him to do that. What about you, Adam? Uh, well, first of uh, a few. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, honestly, Valentino Rossi was only a couple of seconds from the top 10, but don't worry, everybody, because he will have his special helmet livery in Mugello. So, uh, you know, the, the day the day has not been completely lost. But for me, it's very short and sweet, uh, Aprilia. You know, uh, it was a, a track and a situation where they could have, you know, maybe aimed for their first podium uh, and to see reoccurrence of their mechanical gremlins, which, you know, made 2020 such a disaster was uh, a little bit discouraging for the Italians. Yeah, I think Aprilia would have been on my list as well. So I'm actually going to look to the Moto3 class and basically pick the field because this was a weekend where Pedro Costa crashes in the race and still extends his championship lead. I thought Sergio Garcia, fantastic win for him, fantastic win for for Aspar and Gas Gas. But, you know, this was another weekend where, you know, Acosta shows that he's human and still manages to extend his lead. So I think that's a tough, tough one to swallow for all that Moto3 field I think it's uh, definitely hard being Jaume Masia at the moment uh, not only do you crash out you know from a winnable position in the Grand Prix but you know you have such a powerful force next to you as a rookie teammate it's um, you know there must be a lot of thoughts going through his head at the moment and now is probably a good time to plug our Moto2 and Moto3 show uh, that'll be available on Saturday where we'll dissect all of the Moto2 and Moto3 action from Le Mans maybe even a little bit of Moto E thrown in as well just for good measure Oh, wouldn't that be something? It was actually a really good Moto E race, and uh, probably one of the one of the best races we've seen in the class. It's actually going to be a busy time for us on the Paddock Pass podcast in the next couple of weeks because obviously World Superbikes is also starting up. So later in the week, I'll be sitting down with Gordo to be able to go through some preseason stuff, and we'll post that onto Patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, and then obviously over the course of. This week we've got today's show. We've got, like Neil said, the Moto Two, Moto Three show. We've got World Superbike shows upcoming as well. So it is a busy time for all of us on the podcast. Steve, can I just say, you know, before like you know, World Superbike gets underway, quick previews for who will win at Aragon first race and all that. I mean, do you think Chaz Davis could produce a surprise at one of his strongest tracks? Uh, you know, is it going to be a Johnny Ray show? Um, you know, what are people thinking? I have to say, I really hope Chaz manages to have a good weekend this week in Aragon because, like you said, Adam, this is his strongest track in the year. This is one he's had so much success at in the past, and he's got to be so motivated to be able to just go to Ducati and say, you got rid of the wrong guy. I should be on that factory seat. I think he can come in, be really strong at the start of the year. He's got a good crew chief in Pete Jennings as well. Good team around him. He's still got a lot of Ducati factory support. So I think Chaz could be really motivated and I'd underestimate him at your peril this weekend and for the course of the season as well because he knows the bike and now he's got that He's got that kick where you've got to be able to go out there and prove just how good you can be. And I think, you know, that could be the difference for Chaz this year. Suddenly, you know, he's not with the factory team, bit less pressure on him in some ways, but more focus on him as well because he's the only rider for the team. And, you know, if he can get his season off to a strong start here in Aragon, he then goes to Estoril where he won last year as well. So, you know, this could be a very good start to the season for Chaz. 
Uh, well, I'd say that your big prediction is still once again, you know, Johnny's your man to beat because he's six in a row. And then, you know, we'll wait and see if anyone's able to match him over the course of a full season. I think it's going to be quite interesting to sit down with Gordo and see what Gordo has to say. So, like I said, I'll try and get that posted onto patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast by the end of the week. And uh, we'll be able to have a little bit of a season preview. We do actually have Scott Redding interview that went online a couple of days ago as well. So, check that out to start off the World Superbike coverage for the season on the Paddock Pass podcast. But uh, certainly from all of us here, it's going to be a busy time coming up. So until the next time in the Paddock Pass podcast, a big thank you from all of us here for listening to today's show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. See, seeing you in a sporty top, Neil's got me all moist. Wouldn't interrupt you having a moment, uh, Ad. Got to go. Bye.